if you don't know me, my name is Mike Solis. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, my wife, Melissa, and I are usually at our Lincoln Park campus, uh, but I'm on staff. I, I oversee our city groups, and I help with Rock Hill Institute and classes and all other sorts of things, but it's an honor to be with you guys. I'm really glad to be here and to open God's word together. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Joel this morning, so if you have a Bible or if you have an app, go ahead and open it to the book of Joel. Uh, no shame if you need to look first at the table of contents and then figure out where in the world is Joel uh, tucked among the minor prophets there. And actually, we, we've been doing this series uh, called The Thread as we've been walking through all 66 books of the Bible, uh, one sermon for each, and we only have two left in the Old Testament. We have this week and the next week, and then we're in the book of Matthew, which is pretty exciting. Well, that's cool. The preachers are excited too. They're like, oh man. All right, some books we're a little bit more familiar with. So we've got Joel this morning, and then Malachi is next week, and then we're just going straight into the book of Matthew. So it should be fun. So we're going to be in the book of Joel, chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 27 to 32. So find your way there. I'm going to start by reading the passage, and then I'll pray for our time together. So we're in Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 27, and it should be up on the screen here for you. Good. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame, and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Will you pray with me? Father God, whenever we open your word, we are expecting you to speak. And we're expecting to be changed by it. So I pray now that as we look at the book of Joel, that you would open our eyes and soften our hearts. So that we can see more and more of Jesus this morning. It is in Jesus' good name that we pray. Amen. One of the deepest human instincts is to be near the people we love. The presence of others is one of our most basic fundamental needs. Uh, I saw it when my son Julian was an infant. He didn't know very much because he was a baby. But he did know if mom walked away and he cried for her to come back. And because at that age you don't have object permanence. If mom walks away, she might not exist. And that's terrifying, understandable that you would cry. Uh, when we're little kids, we get injured or we get scared or angry and the presence of someone else comforts us. I've, I've got a picture here of one of my favorite Van Gogh paintings. It's called First Steps of a little kid in the presence of their mom and dad. Uh, when we're dating or we're engaged, we often have to be long distance for a time. Anybody have a long distance relationship? It's tough. I get it. We, you just want to be together. So I've got a, a picture here of me and Melissa uh, my wife, we were going on a date to the zoo after a period of long distance, and we found this sign in the monkey enclosure, and it says, primates choose who to be near. And we thought, <laughs> yeah, that's us. <laughs> when we're married, 
It's such a relief at the end of a long day that you can just kind of collapse into each other's arms. And no matter how the day was, at least you can be together at the end of the day. When we have little kids, you're tired and you're frustrated and you're just ready to get away from the kids. But then as soon as you get away, you pull out your phone and you start looking at pictures of them. And you remind yourselves of how cute they are, at least if you're like me. Uh, when you have older kids who start to become more independent, we mourn that letting go process. We miss the times that they needed us. When we're single or we're divorced or we're widowed, we rely on the presence of others like roommates or friends to fill our lives with community and companionship. When we have friends or kids or family that moves away, we plan trips in order to be near them again. We're just counting down the days until Thanksgiving or the next holiday when we can see them again. And then in our last days, right near the end of our lives, we lose interest in accumulating stuff and earning money and achieving greatness. Everything else that used to occupy our minds, really what we want in our last days is to be close to the people whom we love. So here's the point. We can't live life alone or in isolation. The presence of others makes all the difference. Presence changes everything. Now, what does this have to do with the book of Joel? So Joel was a prophet who likely ministered after the exile, which was the greatest disaster in the history of ancient Israel. As we've seen throughout the Thread series, God's people repeatedly and stubbornly rebelled against God and his ways, and so God brought judgment on them in the form of captivity to the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And yet, as we've seen in these post-exilic prophets, judgment is never the end of the story. That's such a key principle that you need to keep in your mind whenever you're reading the Bible. Judgment is never the end of the story. God calls his people to change, to repent, to return to him, and he promises to restore his people to flourishing. So this is a very common theme in the prophetic books, and you see it in the first two chapters of Joel as well. I've got the outline there of the first two chapters. So in Joel's day, uh, the people were suffering not only from human enemies around them, but there was also a locust swarm that came in, uh, a natural disaster that was causing famine and other forms of suffering. So in chapter 1, Joel describes this disaster as a judgment because of Judah's selfishness and sin, and then he calls them to repentance. Chapter 2, it's the same pattern. The day of the Lord that brings judgment on evil, and then a call to repentance. Then right at the very end of the chapter, our passage today, he again brings in that theme of judgment and a call to repentance. And yet, there's one key point where Joel breaks his pattern. And he includes one additional section. It's almost like he's saying, yes, this pattern is important. Yes, Israel needs to turn back to their God. But we know the story so far. They won't do it. Or if they do it, it'll be temporary. We need something else to break the pattern, break the cycle here. And what Joel concludes that we need is God's presence. So we're going to get into what that means and why it matters for us. But here's my goal this morning. I'd like to suggest that like the people of Israel in Joel's day, we also need the presence of God. Whether we realize it or not, it, it is a basic Need. We need it even more than we need the presence of other people. The presence of God satisfies our deepest longings for connection, for self-improvement, for a bigger purpose and meaning in life. What this passage in the book of Joel is trying to teach us is that the only way for us to change and grow is for God to be in our midst. 
for God to be near us, for us to experience his presence in an intimate and a powerful way. And Joel is going to show us that experiencing the presence of God, it's not just for the high and holy people. It's not just for the super religious. The presence of God is for you and me. It's for ordinary, sinful people. And so the big idea of this passage in Joel is this. The presence of God is for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. The presence of God is for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. So we're going to unpack that statement in three parts. First, the presence of God. Second, the presence of God for everyone. And then what it means to call on the name of the Lord. So we're just going to walk through these verses one by one. So keep the book of Joel open in chapter 2. We're going to look again at verse 27 here. Let me read it. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. Now that last line tells us something about the emotional condition of God's people at this point in the story. So one of the results of the exile was that Israel experienced collective shame, corporate dishonor and disgrace because they had for generations been a nation that was filled with injustice and greed and hypocrisy. Now, when we hear that word shame, what usually comes to mind for us is individual shame, the harmful effects that can come from that. But that's not what Joel is talking about here. He's talking about corporate shame, a shared sense of failure, a kind of communal mourning and disappointment about the way that things turned out. Now, here in the West, we don't live in an honor-shame culture, at least not as much as some other cultures. But maybe you've felt this yourself. Like you've tried and tried over and over again to make things better, but it always seems to turn out badly. You're just disappointed and discouraged. Maybe you felt that within a smaller group of people like your family or a small group or even a church level. Imagine it on a national level, everyone feeling that shame and disgrace. And yet, God says to his people here, I want to make it so that you never feel that way again. And notice that he calls them my people, like he's a protective parent here. And he says never again, like he's soothing all of our deep-seated anxieties. God wants to lift that weighty sense of disgrace from sin and failure off their shoulders And the way that he's going to do it is to be in their midst, to be near, to be close and present. Now let's talk about the presence of God. The presence of God is a major theme throughout the Bible, and it can mean different things. So here are three categories to keep in mind as we talk about the presence of God as you read the scriptures. So first, God is present in every place. He is omnipresent. Uh, This is what the psalmist observes in Psalm 139. No matter where I go, if I go north, south, east, west, no matter where, you're there. I can't escape from you. The second meaning of presence is that God shows himself to be intensely present in special holy places, like the tabernacle or the temple. We'll talk about that more in a moment. The third kind of presence is what Joel is talking about here which is God's special attention and devotion to his chosen people. It's the feeling we get if you are a Christian. Sometimes you feel like God is in the room here, like he's watching over me and he's very near to me. It's what the psalmist refers to at the beginning of Psalm 46. He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. 
But here's the catch. Our ability to feel that last kind of presence, it comes and goes. Uh, Sometimes the biblical authors will speak about God as being distant or absent. It's that feeling like he's not in the room. And they say, where are you, God? I wonder if you've ever felt like that. It's a common experience for the people of God. That's why the promise of Joel 2 is so powerful. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. God recognizes that what will remove our shame and change us is for us to know deep in our souls that God is with us, that he is always with us, that he's never far from us, that nobody else can comfort us like God's presence. That's what the rest of the verse says. Know that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. So what Joel is describing here is a personal experience of God's grace and power that convinces us that he's unique, that he has no rival, that even if I have nobody else in my life, all I need is the presence of God near to me. That God, who made us and loves us, has an exclusive claim to our allegiance. His presence changes everything. If God is near to me, if he is in the room, then I can't just keep living the way that I have been. Something changes. There's a scene at the beginning of The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien where the Hobbit Bilbo is trying to get rid of this annoying stranger who just shows up. It's this gray-haired old man with long robes and a staff who's just very rudely interrupting his day. And Bilbo says, "I I don't think I know your name. And the man responds, yes, yes, my dear sir, and I do know your name, Mr. Bilbo Baggins, and you do know my name, though you don't remember that I belong to it. I am Gandalf, and Gandalf means me. And as soon as Bilbo recognizes that Gandalf is in his midst, the adventure begins. After all, you can't just ignore a wizard on your front porch. And so in the story of The Hobbit, Gandalf's presence changes everything. In the same way, Joel is telling us that real profound change comes when God is here. We can't just ignore him. He brings the change. His presence does. And yet Joel takes it one step further in the next two verses. Let's read them together. Verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So we're told that these things described here will happen afterward, which is some indefinite jump forward in time. At some point, a new era of a new relationship begins between God and his people when God pours out his spirit on all flesh. Now, what does that actually mean? What does God's spirit mean? So in Hebrew, the word for spirit is the word ruach. It's the same word as breath or wind. Uh, In the scriptures, every living creature has an animating energy that gives us breath in our lungs and movement to our bodies. In, In English, we have the word spirited, like he moved or talked in a spirited way. That's the sense here. The, the, movement, the human spirit is what moves us. It's our activity and our actions. But in the Old Testament, we also see God's spirit move and act. At various points throughout the Old Testament story, God temporarily puts his spirit on someone to empower them in a unique way. So in Genesis, God's spirit enables Joseph to interpret dreams. In Exodus, the craftsmen who made the tabernacle are empowered by the Spirit, given special skills to make these beautiful things. 
In the book of Judges, uh, Samson is empowered to rescue Israel from the oppression of the Philistines. And we're also told that the prophets have God's spirit in them that helps them to understand reality through God's eyes and to share that message of warning and hope to anyone who would listen. But here in our passage, Joel is envisioning a day when God's empowering spirit would not just be given to a few, just selectively, but it would be poured out bountifully on all of God's people. Remember that second meaning of presence, God's intense glory in special holy places like the temple. Joel is describing that white-hot concentration of God's temple presence now poured out on everyone indiscriminately in contrast to the limited group of people whom God empowered for great deeds in the Old Testament, he will someday empower all of his people. This is a pretty amazing promise. One day there will be no more need for prophets to mediate and deliver God's words because everybody will be a prophet and know God's words. Every sector of society will share in the prophet's understanding of God. No one will be left out. There will be no hierarchies of spirit power. Young and old, men and women, people from every class and socioeconomic status, uh, and because of the phrase all flesh, and because many slaves in that day were foreigners, there's even a hint here that the spirit will be poured out on Gentiles, non-Jews. The emphasis here is on the scandalous lavishness of the spirit being poured out on all. It's the democratization of God's spirit. The people will become prophets. There's this curious little story in the book of Numbers. If you're reading through the Bible in a year, you're probably about to this story. And if you read it, if you're like me, you probably read it and just moved on and said, I don't know what that means. So it's in Numbers chapter 11. Uh, God gathers 70 leaders and elders from among the people of Israel, and he empowers them by his spirit to prophesy to the people, to speak truth. But there were two leaders, two among those elders, uh, named Eldad and Medad, who weren't with everybody else. They were off just doing their own thing in a different part of the camp. And when God's spirit comes onto the elders, it also goes onto those elders who are doing their own thing over there. And they suddenly begin prophesying. So we pick up the story here in verse 27. I think I've got it up there, yeah. Uh, And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, my Lord Moses, stop them. In other words, there are only supposed to be special people who are prophets here, not not just anybody. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So from the very beginning, Moses longs for a day when every person has God's spirit, his presence, and his power. In our passage, Joel the prophet is predicting the day when he's out of a job. Like, my job is going to be obsolete. Uh, our, Our society has a number of obsolete jobs that used to be so essential, but now they're no longer necessary. I mean... Nobody's a milkman anymore or a switchboard operator or a town crier. We don't, we don't need those jobs anymore. And what Joel is saying is someday we're not going to need the job of prophet anymore because everybody can do it now. Now, as we're going to see in the moment when we look to the book of Acts, I believe that this prediction by Joel has now come to pass through the works of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. I believe the time that he's talking about 
is now. But that raises a question in our minds. If I'm a Christian, what does it mean for me to have the Spirit and be a prophet and do prophetic things? Like, when I signed up to follow Jesus, that wasn't part of the job description. What, what does this mean for me? We see some details here, like the mention of dreams and visions. And so I believe God can communicate to us through dreams as he does so throughout the scriptures as we see around the world today. But, but Joel is just giving us a general prediction. He's not giving us details about what this would look like. We find those kinds of details in the New Testament, and they're still fairly confusing and debated among Christians. Passages like 1 Corinthians 14. Now, we don't have time to go deeply into what prophecy looks like in the New Testament era. It's fascinating, but it is honestly a, a topic that is secondary, uh, and smart Christians disagree about this. But as I've studied these things, here's a general idea that most Christians would not find controversial. Most Christians would agree on this. At the very least, prophecy in the New Testament is not new revelation. So it's not new words of God concerning the way of salvation or the nature of God, the principles of the Christian life, etc. It's not new revelation, but rather is God's gift of particular situational guidance that must be tested and be in full accordance with the written words of scripture. I heard one pastor put it this way. In the New Testament, prophecy at the very least is God's spirit helping us to say exactly the right thing at exactly the right time. Have you ever been in a meeting at work or a, maybe a family discussion, family argument, uh, where there's some debate about a decision or the way to go forward? There's a lot of back and forth. There's no resolution here. But then one person just speaks up and says precisely what everyone needs to hear in that moment. And there's so much consensus that that is the right way to go forward that it's clear this is from the Lord. Or, or maybe you've been in a situation where you're comforting someone who's in distress, uh, a friend who uh, is having a panic attack, a coworker who's grieving. You're in that moment, and, and sometimes we don't know what to say. But at other times, we have a, a prompting, like, hey, I don't know if this will be helpful or not, but I just feel led to say this right now. Or perhaps you've heard a mentor or a pastor or a teacher say something kind of in an offhand way. It's not like they were intending to be prophetic, but that little thing they said, just open your eyes to something you've been wrestling with, and it just sticks with you for years and years afterwards. At the very least, most Christians agree that that is prophecy. It's ordinary, and yet, it's pretty extraordinary. There's so much more that we could say about this topic. We will later in the thread series, when we come to the New Testament, touch on many important passages about the Holy Spirit and the way that he empowers the church. Uh, you can see the preaching calendar on our website if you're curious about what passages we're going to be looking at in the future on the thread series. So can we just agree that this isn't the end of the conversation about the Holy Spirit and the way he works? This, this is the beginning of the conversation. Uh, but in our questions and our ponderings about these things, I don't want us to miss what Joel's main idea is here. God promises that one day, and again, I believe that day is now, everyone who believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ, every Christian from every stage of life will be empowered by God's spirit to the high calling of prophecy. That's what we have to wrestle with from Joel. Let's look at these last verses here. We, he turns again and he he uses this phrase, calling on the name of the Lord. So let's read verses 30 to 32. 
and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors, there shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now, this is peak apocalyptic literature right here, right? This is a good taste of what it's like, the, the apocalyptic literature in the prophets. Joel is foreseeing the day of the Lord, a time of judgment and trouble for those who are against God, and a time of deliverance and rescue for God's people. It's, it's typical in prophetic apocalypse to use these vivid images that aren't necessarily literal in order to convey a sense of scale to the Lord's power here. So we get these descriptions of uh, the moon turning to blood, columns of smoke, and so on, uh, what one commentator called cosmic convulsions, which I think is just a great phrase. See if you can use that this week, just in normal conversation. Cosmic convulsions. The point we're meant to understand is that when God shows up, when his presence is here to put a final end to evil, it is either the worst news ever or the best news ever. And how do we know if we're going to be in the group that will rejoice when God comes in the last days? Verse 32, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The word salvation means rescue, escape. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. So we're meant to picture this kind of raging storm that is wiping away injustice and wickedness from the face of the earth. And it would wipe away us as well. But in the eye of that storm, there's a small group of people huddled on a mountain who escape. Why? Because they're calling on the name of the Lord. One commentator explains what that phrase means. He says, in the midst of all this trouble are survivors who shall be saved and escape the destructive effects of the day of the Lord. They will do so not by running, not by fighting, but through their genuine commitment and exclusive loyalty to God. To call on the name of the Lord means to pray to, and more broadly, to worship God. The phrase is similar to knowing God, to seeking him. So those are the people who will be saved when the day of the Lord comes. Interestingly, did you notice that there are two types of calling here? God calls out to his people, inviting them to be delivered from the storm. And his people respond by then calling out to God in praise and prayer. And again, what is the thing that will save us? What is the thing that will change us? What is the thing that will keep us safe? It is the presence of God. And then this vision ends. And the book of Joel just moves on from there. It's just kind of left hanging. We're not told when this would happen or how it would happen. One of the reasons we chose this passage for the book of Joel in this thread series was because it is quoted by the Apostle Peter at length in one of the key moments in church history. One of the last things that Jesus said to his disciples before ascending into heaven was, you shall receive the Holy Spirit soon. And we might think, okay, so the Holy Spirit is going to empower these 12 disciples, this few, to do great things, just like he did in the Old Testament. These are going to be the new prophets. But a little while later, we read this. 
when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, not just the 12, but all of Jesus' followers. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter stands up to preach, and he explains what has just happened. And the passage that he goes to is Joel 2. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And he quotes the rest of this passage. And then he goes on to say, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Do you notice the point that Peter is making here? He's saying, you, you see the presence of God that just came on every one of us. This is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And not only that part, about God's spirit being poured out on all flesh. Also the part about everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And now we know that name is Jesus. Jesus, who is called Emmanuel, God with us. The word made flesh who dwelt among us. Jesus, who lived the perfect life we should have lived. Who did miraculous wonders through the Holy Spirit who empowered him. Jesus, who died to save his people from their sins, who hung on a cross while the sun turned to darkness on that great and awesome and tragic day of the Lord. Jesus, who escaped death by defeating death and rising again to give everyone who calls on his name new life. Jesus, who ascended into heaven but said, I do not leave you alone, I'm going to give you a helper the Holy Spirit poured out on every Christian, young and old, male and female, poor and rich, slave and free. All are given the power of the Spirit and the presence of God. So now, the chosen people of God, it doesn't take the form of a nation. We're an international family, the church, whose boundary lines are drawn not by race, but by faith, by calling on the name of the Lord. And so I say to you this morning what the Apostle Peter said 2,000 years ago, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The presence of God changes everything. It can change your heart of stone into a heart that is alive to God and to the world. It can change your sinfulness and selfishness, the wrecked pieces of your life, and remake them into something that is good and true and beautiful. You can't change your life on your own. You've tried. Israel tried. People have been trying ever since the world started. We need something else to change here. And I'm telling you this morning that what changes is God in you, God with you. If you see this morning that you need him and you've never called out to him before, you've never prayed to him before, call on the name of Jesus today. Pray, Lord, I need you to save me. I need you to give me your presence. I need your power and your safety and your comfort. 
forgive my sins and failures by the blood of the cross. Give me new life by the resurrection. What else must we we do to be saved? Joel tells us, nothing else. That's all. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What about for those of us who are already Christians? We already have the Holy Spirit within us to empower us, to comfort us, to secure us. But for many of us, it's very, very easy to forget or even ignore God's presence that is within us. So I want to close by asking this. What would change if we accepted the reality that all of us have the Spirit? What would change in your life? For example, what would it change about the way that we love? Every human being you meet has innate dignity and worth because they are made in the image of God. And your Christian brothers and sisters also have God's spirit within them. So the people we interact with on Sunday morning, each person here, the the people we live life alongside in city groups, the people with whom we pray, the body of believers is now the place where God's presence dwells. So we don't go to the temple anymore to experience God's presence. We all have the spirit and that should change the way that we love and forgive and encourage, and praise. That's why the Apostle Paul observed that one of the main works of the Holy Spirit is to unite the church. In Galatians 5, he writes that the fruit of the Spirit is love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. That is what the Spirit does among us. If we live in community as God's family, The Spirit of God helps us to love one another. Another example. What would change about the way that we serve if we remembered that we all have the Spirit? So you might just have the natural assumption that really just a few of us have real power to make a difference in the church or in this world, in the community. It's just for the gifted few. I'll just kind of play my little role. But as we've seen, that's an Old Testament way of thinking about God's Spirit. We're in the New Testament now. In the New Testament, every follower of Jesus has been gifted by the Spirit to use those gifts to serve. It changes the way that we view the church. So the ministry of Rock Hill Community Church is not done by me, pastors and elders. It's done by us together. Our leaders are here just to equip you for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ So that should increase your sense of ownership. If God has called you to be a member of this church, your gifts are real and needed and welcome. We need musicians and preachers, but they're just the visible ones. We need the other gifts of the Spirit. We need those who are immensely kind and compassionate. We need those who take indescribable delight in spreadsheets. We need you. We need those gifts of organization. We need the soothing presence of those who love to care for toddlers, who just have a way with them. We need the bold proclaimers who will talk about Jesus and spread the good news with literally everyone they meet. We need the thinkers and the philosophers to ask good questions. We need the artists to show us truth and beauty in a unique way. We need people who are experts in their field to build a better world together. We'll touch on this more when we get to the book of 1 Corinthians. But today, consider, how am I gifted by the Spirit? 
Not whether I am, but how am I? Because God is within me. Finally, what would change in my faith if I knew deep in my soul that I'm never alone? If you are in Christ, God has not left you, nor will ever leave you. His spirit is in you, and his presence changes everything. It's where you can find comfort when you are lowest. It's where we can find power when we are weak. It's where we, can, where we are sealed and secured in the love of God. The presence of God is for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. So call upon the name of the Lord today, the name of Jesus, and you will experience the presence of God.